Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Joining me in a conversation today is Dr. Neil Baker. He started his career in academic psychiatry as chief of an inpatient service. He then was captivated by leadership and observed that the best patient care came from the best teams which had the best leadership. In the last 11 years, he has focused entirely on relational, cultural and leadership side of improvement. Neil Baker joined me in a conversation about his philosophy on leadership. Welcome to the show, Neil. We're absolutely delighted to have you speaking with me today. I wanted to start by asking you as doctor to doctor, what's your superpower? I believe that my superpower is my acute awareness of my own humanity and vulnerabilities, which I have to constantly remind myself of because it's easy to forget and act as if I'm a superman. That's a very interesting answer and wasn't what I was expecting. Why do you think that is such an important part of what you do? Well, um, I'm going to connect two things here, and they may be themes through our talk. One is how we interact with an individual right here and now, whether it's one patient, one doctor, one nurse, one team member, and big systems change. I've come to see that they are tightly linked. I think there's compelling evidence for that. And what I also see is the uh, type of relationship that builds change for patients and staff, doctors, systems is very similar. And the key thing is it's quite fragile and that small things can upend it so that we might still get success, but we constantly can trip over not getting the level of success, the level of sustainability the level, the type of humanistic work environment we want. So I think that my pathway to that is recognizing my own humanness and fragility of my best skills, recognizing and um, then looking at the literature about that, testing out those observations myself, testing out ways of dealing with that. So it's been kind of a lifetime of doing that, both personally and professionally. So what you're suggesting is that your frailties, your failings are an important part of your results in the sense that they influence the organizations in which you work. Yes. That's not a view we hear very often. It's very refreshing to hear that view because we, you know, this business of one person to the next person leading to the outcome of the system is something that... We assume that it's always the system that's the problem. It's because I have to build in this way. It's because the building is set up in this way. It's because, and there are lots of becauses. It's because the staff who are employed here are such a problem that I don't get the results that I want. And yet you're saying that it's that interaction between you and the patient or you and your colleague that makes all the difference to the outcome. Uh, yeah, so I add in here that And the type of interaction that gets the best results is fragile and that we build systems that don't have structures and processes and leadership that pays attention to that. And I just want to say, I'm talking in a global way, black or white. I don't mean that in that way, that I would say, let me state it differently. We, our biggest challenge 
is developing systems that pay with leadership that pays attention to that. I think that's a bit less judgmental way of saying it. It is. is it, it's not so much the judgmental side that that is of interest to me. It is the notion that, uh, as Kobe said in his books, you know, influence the things that you are able to influence. What's in your circle of influence? And that in fact, yes. If you bring your best self to your work, then you will make the system, whatever the system is, work better for everybody else. Well, I have another thought to throw in there, which is important, which is that the system can help substantially in making that more feasible and more at ease for people to do. And the key people who can do help do that are leaders with positional authority and how they behave and the structures and processes they bring in. And I know this may sound a bit a counter to the idea that we want to diminish top-down management hierarchy and spread power. There's a great paradox here is that how leaders with positional authority behave enables empowerment and is enabling to that discussion. But I think I agree with what you say that as an individual in a system, if I don't own my own power, it's all I can do harm, both in, uh, I, to the person in front of me and to the system. But yet there's also things that helped me a lot if the system, the leadership and the system inna- is enabling, and I'm not working uphill against that. Yeah, I get that completely. And uh, for me, for many people listening, they will say, yeah, the system, they, they will understand this because you work in an organization where the CEO behaves in a particular way, uh, sets up a system in a particular way, whether your concerns are addressed sooner rather than later depends on the policies of that particular leader and how they're addressed depends on the style of that leader and, and their ability to facilitate human interactions in the best possible way. Yes. Okay. But in saying that also, I guess those who will be listening may not be in, in those positions of authority and and they'll be thinking, what, what's this thing called power? What do you mean power? I have no power. And perhaps that you can say something about that. So um, I have looked at one of the, incidentally, one of the hardest things to find in the literature of leadership and organizational development is really practical, powerful stuff about power. Yeah. And so what I've done is uh, I have some definitions of power that I find practically useful in a practical day-to-day sense. Mm-hmm. And so there are roughly two to three forms of power that I find most useful to keep in mind. One is positional power, where it's a traditional power in a hierarchy to hire, fire, do performance management resources. Professional power is related to that, where it's credentialed authority by virtue of certain credentials. But a key thing that everyone has is relational power. And that is the power to influence the environment around you in a way that either makes it more conducive to joy at work, motivation, psychological safety, or less conducive. We all have this power. We all can do it right now. And there's such compelling evidence that has such an important impact on results. So while, and one of our challenges is that it is an automatic almost human reflex to respond to power 
in ways which pull us out of our relational power. It's, um, the default under the in the pressure, stress, and complexity of our organizations will be that we will be out of touch of our with our relational power unless we pay active attention to it continuously. So talk about that. What is this thing, relational power? Um, is it something that's given to us? Is it something we're born with? Is it something that we should, how do we recognize that we've got it? How do we recognize? Oh, let me tell you, I'll start with my beliefs about it, confirmed by observation, reading about things that we all have this. The challenge is not skills. The, uh, surely skills, training and stuff can help. We have it. What is needed is conceptual awareness, motivation about using it. And then the hardest part, which is sustaining a practice of doing that in human environments, in organizations that are constantly pulling out of it, not by any ill intent, ill intent, but that's just the way things work, the way our brains are hardwired. So the way I recognize this, for example, shall I give you an example from my early on in my career when I discovered this? I was, uh, my first job was as chief of a psychiatric inpatient service at University of Colorado. It was an academic setting. I had residents and medical students, tons of different disciplines, social work students. And I was hired into that because I was so skilled at facilitating learning and people engaging. Okay. But when I started, I didn't know this. I was terrible at it. It's because I was young. It's not that I can't still do these things now, but what happened was with all the pressure to perform, I'd never been in such a visible position every moment of every day. All these eyes were on me. The sickest patients in the uh, in in the community, homicidal, suicidal, and I had such performance work, I was falling into making sure everything was right, being more directive, and um, what I, I got some of the worst ratings of any attending. And what really got me is I had a woman resident in my office who started crying because she couldn't do anything right. And what's she felt that way. And what was interesting is it's not because I said you can't do anything wrong, nor was I critical or demeaning. It, by virtue of the fact that I was constantly giving directing and correcting, that's how people feel. And I suddenly go, oh, my God, I don't want you to feel bad. And so it was a matter of getting back in touch with listening to her and gradually figuring out a way to both have my accountability and nurture her accountability. A lot of basic listening, observation, support. I knew how to do that. The biggest thing was holding on to my own anxiety about performance and failing and that sort of thing. I actually heard one of your recordings with Ronald Epstein and uh, with the mindfulness. And he said every time he goes into a room, before he put, as he puts his hand on the doorknob, he checks in with himself. And you know what? That's exactly what happened back then, is before I'd go into the morning report with everybody there, as I put reached the door, I go, wait, I feel pressure. I got to remember, I've got to listen to people, talk to people. And one of the biggest challenge, incidentally, with some we can talk about, one of the biggest challenges, how do you listen, engage, and talk to people and help them deal with concerns while also sustaining progress to results? But it's that kind of, he terms it mindfulness. I, I term it self-awareness and checking in with my own level of reaction to the environment. Um, and within a couple of years, I was one of the highest rating attendings uh, in, the, in the system. And um, it's not that I didn't make mistakes still, but I was constantly checking in with people. How is this going? 
Am I, am I uh, how, what's the impact on you? Are you feel like you're learning, you're being listened to, you have an opportunity to grow? I was constantly checking in and correct course correcting for my mistakes. And you've framed that as relational power. There's relational power. It's simply, am I able to listen to people and understand them? Am I able to listen to different viewpoints and explore them rather than fall into push, pull, push, you know, debates and arguing? Am I able to hold on to my view and also listen to others? Am I able to help? Uh, that just gives you a few that come to mind right now. I think they're really astoundingly simple in concept compared to what we usually deal with in healthcare, but so profoundly difficult to do consistently. They are difficult to do consistently. And I think that we go, we, we, we need to recognize that they aren't really as simple as people think because it's almost habitual. You've got positional power. I, I'm, I'm the boss here. Do as I say. Can you see the name on the door? Can you see the qualifications on the door? That's me. Do as I say. And we've got some of that. Uh, you, you forgive me, but we've got some of that happening in the United States at the, at the moment where positional power seems to have taken over completely. Uh, as opposed to what you're describing here, which is becoming aware of our own reactions and how we might be coming across to somebody, how we might be able to get the best from them by seeing them. Yes. Incidentally, I um, so for all those evidence-based physician minds out there, I was uh, one of my jobs. I was the uh, medical director of clinical permanent group health in Seattle, which is now part of Kaiser. And I was responsible for development and updating of evidence-based guidelines for prevention and chronic illness care. And I've approached this in the same way, uh, this field. And what I want to tell you, if you look at 20 years of research on psychological safety, 40 years of research on intrinsic motivation, what helps people perform better is having an opportunity for open and honest conversations in which they can express concerns, disagreements, negative feelings, new ideas. So you have to ask. And how often do we ask? And we have to ask everybody on the team, either in group and individual sessions. So I just think it's a foundational to this big systems change we want. So really, it's about seeing, checking in with people as they work the system and say, I, I don't hear you saying, well, we just need to go in there and fix this or pay them more or, or change the light bulbs or whatever else might be the price. You're not talking about those things. You're actually talking about saying, can I just check how you are and how this is working for you and allowing that emotional baggage to be offloaded before you yes. go forward. Okay. So what do you think are the big challenges that we have in healthcare as you survey the environment, whether it's in the US or globally, where do you think are the challenges and where do you think that we can start to respond in a way that's going to make a difference? Uh, I just came out of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement National Conference in December in Orlando, and I was asking for validation for this. I've looked at literature and stuff like that. I think one of the biggest problems we have is to quote a senior leader there, nothing scales. Uh, quality improvement and safety results, we can do it in, a, in one clinical setting in an organization. It's hard to spread and scale it to others. We can have one organization be successful. It's hard to spread and scale it in others. And I think the heart of this has to do with leadership 
and how leadership attends to this sort of discussion we're happening. For example, when I look at quality improvement efforts, one of the biggest gaps is leadership is not aligned up and down the organization, ongoingly reviewing things, not just for are we progressing, but how are people doing with it? And this sounds crazy, but I think that if you're having trouble getting an improvement done, doesn't it seem straightforward? Somebody is ideally responsible for caring about that. And if they care about it, you ought to be able to pinpoint the problem by talking to people. I, when I look at improvement stores, I've looked at hundreds of improvement stores where there are problems. The biggest issue has to do with this kind of uh, communication that slows down from the rational analytic task-oriented problem-solving performance orientation, which is still important, to this more nonlinear, intuitive, subjective, person-centered conversation. I think our biggest challenge is, is integrating those two. Could the other issue here be context? Because, you know, what, what we can achieve in some parts of, let's say, Australia in terms of healthcare cannot be achieved in other parts in Australia in healthcare because the issues, the local issues are very different. The local environment is very different. I mean, we've got the issue of uh, distance, you know, the tyranny of distance. We've got the issue of yes. availability of uh, staff who might be uh, able to, to deal with a particular problem. We've got the availability of resource, et cetera, et cetera. So to say, you know, you've achieved uh, cancer improvement cancer survival improvement in one part of the country, but you have it in another. It's not so much about we fail to recognize context. And maybe this is what yes. you're trying to hint at, that if you ask the leaders in those communities about what it is that's stopping this happening, we might actually find uh, not necessarily a solution, but certainly an understanding of how things need to change. Yes, it's getting at those stories of what's, what happens. Uh, and if there's a problem, what's getting in the way of it being addressed, uh, of it being talked out of a, a group doing it? And I'm not saying these aren't huge challenges, and and but we ought to be able to know why, and there ought to be it ought, and somebody's accountable for prioritizing that why. And there may be very good reasons why don't they don't prioritize a particular why, but we ought to know about that instead of pretending that we can, by just becoming up this brilliant quality improvement or safety methodology, somebody can just plug it in. Of course, we had that in the in the UK in the NHS, where they did this quality improvement framework, and it all but destroyed the NHS from what, from what my colleagues really? tell me. Because essentially, what happened was they incentivized doctors to do certain things. And of course, they did those things, but they didn't incentivize them to do every other thing. And, and the every other thing is what came back to bite them. You got diabetes, no problem. Ten years of lovely incentivized diabetes care. But what about your depression and your back pain and your whatever else that is in the community? Um, and you're right. The leadership needs to change, to recognize and have those real meaningful conversations. But I'm also interested in what happens to the local clinicians, the ones who are at the coalface who say, oh, that's all very well for the leaders, but how do I survive a system where the leaders are not listening? What would you say to them? What I would say is that um, it's a similar sort of principle. And I, I've worked with people around such problems. You know, very, very often who I'm dealing with with an improvement problem is not this leader with the most power. 
it's the improvement has been delegated down the hierarchy to people and they're forgotten about <laughs> or you know please go do this don't bother me anymore and then the biggest challenge is how do i if i care about this how do i sustain this how do i influence upwards and then adjust expectations without letting go of it it's actually a challenging personal practice to be able to care about something and it you know if we want it to be perfect right now we'll be miserable if we can adjust it's hard to care about i've done this it's hard to care about something so deeply and realize it's going to take time so what can i do right now that's going to make me feel like i'm it's developing conversational strategies targeted to the right people and most important that if i'm depressed and negative it's going to impact my patients when they come in so at minimum i cannot do harm and do good with what's in front of me and i, I don't want to minimize the effort i've been a depressed and miserable physician before and um it's very challenging to manage that and yet it is doable but it works so much better if you have colleagues and we're talking about it and how to do that and it's my impression that in medicine we're used to talking about diagnosis and how to treat this patient we're not as used to talking about how do you feel today and how did you how did you get it beyond that depression to be able to deal with this patient so what are your top 3 hints if i'm a miserable depressed clinician what are your top thing what did you do to survive that and and become you know and have your career flower as it clearly has i would say that um uh one of the most important things is developing what i call uh, my true north uh what the things i deeply care about or you could also call it your vision uh for two things the results i would i want to have like i want people to have good great the greatest care and but also for the type of relationships i want to build and what happens is if i'm in a depressive angry state there's there's going to be a discrepancy between that and my true north and this is the painful and difficult part of it this is why it's so hard to do is because we constantly have to hold up the mirror and we have to deal with our inner critic and this is what i meant when i started talking the most important thing that's happened to me is to be able to get beyond my wish to be the superman who's always i always i idealized the white coat rational analytic always in charge always able to respond calmly you know and was able to see no we all fall off of that regularly and if we don't recognize that and have compassion for it starting with ourselves it's going to be hard to do so i did, this was a personal practice i had coaching i had colleagues i read and um at the heart it's a practice meaning that it never ends we're constantly have to staying on on touch of on on top of it uh i also don't want to minimize other things that can be going on people can get a major depression or you know fall into substance abuse or things like that and then you need some other you have to recognize that as a risk and make sure you take care of that if it's pervasively a problem get get an evaluation for that and i did for myself too i had some psychotherapy i've had you know i it turned out that i i didn't i decided using diagnosticals i didn't have a major depression and antidepressants really didn't help me that much so 
I had the I didn't have an, of that fortunate magic pill. I had <laughs> I had to do this hard work of personal practice. Well, you do anyway, even if you have a major depression. But you you said you you got a coach. Um, did you actually have somebody? How do you pick a coach? How did you how do you find one? Uh, I would say that um, finding this sort of match and what helps is quite demanding. It's not easy to do. There's a huge number of people out there. I think it's getting word of mouth, you know, a couple of referrals and interviewing people up front to see, does it feel right? I mean, do you feel better afterwards? Is there practical work that needs to be done? So what I recommend is, um, so there are a lot of people out there who will charge for that sort of session. I have stopped. I still seek out coaching at times or, or at times therapy, and I don't choose people who don't let me have some sort of session up front, talking up front to assess that. And certainly uh, feeling like I have the flex, I'm not given some program that is going to cost a lot of money. I don't think that's, you know, you could choose that, but I'd be wary of jumping into that uh, right away. Maybe say something about where you're at now. I mean, you've talked about your vision and your practical approach. Where, what, what are you working on at the moment? So I have um, two major sources of work. One is I do executive, I do coaching. Primarily, it's with people in executive positions at any level, you know, from senior, low physicians, nurses, chief operating officers, CEOs. And I also work with quality improvement organizations to help them solve say, we're running into a problem with this pilot, uh, and it looks like leadership, what do we do? And then what I uh, also, what I uh, is looking at, if you have an improvement effort, how do you build in leadership interventions and contracting from the beginning? So that's, and what I'd really like to do, I don't have in hand yet, and which is that, and I'm looking for that, which is, Somebody's got an improvement initiative, or it's a quality improvement organization. You're trying it in a number of clinics, number of organizations. I think you need to integrate the relational cultural side, but not in the way it's usually done by creating yet this huge academic framework and tools. It's by talking to people and getting the stories about what the barriers are and intervening, along with the theory that is fit the theory behind this, not without principles, but constantly testing what I'm talking about. You have to have ongoing review meetings with the leaders talking about how's the project going and what are the barriers and how does it feel to you and what are your concerns? It's again, and those have to go on up and down the organization. So my theory would be is that through those stories, you can gradually get that work moving because one of, one of the barriers we have, say, an improvement and collaborative with 10 organizations, say, coming together with a clinical unit over the course of a year. On You hear these reports on average, you get improvement. But how often do you hear what percent of those organizations got above a certain level? Actually, I've seen uh, there's data. It actually is from England that one collaborative have a, had a range of uh, organizations with great improvement down to having a worsening. So, can we move from being satisfied with some global number to, in this setting, are we getting every patient every time, everywhere? And I want to thank Ariadne Labs for giving me that the precise words for that, because I think they've got that vision. 
And as you say, it's about that interaction between those at the coalface, really, which ultimately will make the difference and yes. the leadership to actually achieve that. Neil Baker, it's been an, a great joy speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I very much look forward to following up in due course. Me too. It's been delightful. Thank you very much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>